0: Good morning and Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. Our weekly analysis of the Parsha and our effort to extract the lessons that can inspire us in our daily lives. I want to thank our generous sponsors for the Parsha series for the year. Dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, David Ben Menachem Manash. Thank you so much for your generosity throughout this year for the entire series, not just for today. And this particular Parsha show this morning is sponsored by Jerry Hirschenberg in memory of his father, Bernie Dov Sussman ben Yosef Yaakov. His is Monday, 12 Shvat. Neshama should have an Aliyah. Thank you so much for your generosity. We have the privilege this morning of studying together Parshas Bo, a continuation of the unfolding of this amazing narrative, the story of the birth of the Jewish people, not the first family, but the birth of our nation. And it appears in the art Scroll on page 340. HaShem says to Moshe, Bo, not Leich, not Go, but Bo, come with me. We'll come back to that in one moment to analyze. What did he mean by Bo, come with me, and not Go, Leich El Par. But before we even get to that, I want to take a step back. Our parsha is continuing with the story that we're also familiar with. We know the story. We read about the rest of the plague's and that Paros hardened heart, his stubbornness, his obstinacy, his unwillingness to listen or heed the messages that are being broadcast directly to him. We'll come back to that as well. And finally, our parsha culminates in the harshness, the severity of the 10th plague, Makas Bechoros, which is a catalyst not only for the liberation of the Jewish people, not only does it launch the release of the Jewish people, their emancipation, but invites them to be a partner in liberating themselves, and again, we'll talk about that as well when HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty, invites the Jewish people to uh, use the blood on the doorpost and to make a sign so he knows which home to skip over, something unique to the tenth and final plague, Makas Bachoros, something that we did not see earlier, really questionable why that is. Why didn't Hashem need help for the first nine? But he's so to say almost as if needs help for the tenth plague that he asks us to get involved. So we see that this is uh, the story the culmination of the story of the exodus of our freedom. And as we reach the point of the narrative the people are set free, you can't help but ask, why? Why does Hashem have to bring about the liberation and the emancipation of the Jewish people with such pomp and circumstance? Does Hashem need such attention? Does God need us in perpetuity to read these parashios and go, wow, we're blown away. We're so impressed. Why ten plagues and not just one? Why interfere with nature and not just... Allow nature to take its course and let the Jewish people, let them be liberated and escape. Let them go on to a newfound freedom in a way which seems natural. Why are the 10 Makos, there's one big flex? You know, the young people say flex. If a person's showing off and they say something they don't need to, it's a flex. You read Pasha's Boat, it's as if Hashem is one big flex. Why can't he just let them out in a much more subtle way? Why does it have to be with such pomp and circumstance in such an impressive fashion? And there are many, many answers that are given to this question. And as I said, you can't help but learn parshas vaira and bo and not uh, be bothered and not ask or investigate this question. But at the end of our parsha, the Ramban has a comment, one of his most famous on the entire Torah, fundamental, so fundamental that Revolba says one should commit this insight, this comment of the Ramban to memory. The Ramban writes towards the end of our Pasha From these great public miracles, from Hashem revealing His hand so publicly, a person can also concede to hidden miracles, which constitute the foundation of the entire Torah. You see, The fact that Hashem revealed Himself in such an obvious and undeniable way, and it's part of our history, it's part of our story, it we carry it as part of our ongoing memory, makes us or encourages us or gives us license or obligates us to look around at the rest of our lives and to see His guiding hand. The Ramban continues, Wow! What a comment of the Ramban. A person does not have a share in the Torah of Moshe until we believe that all the things and events that we encounter are all miracles. There's no such thing for the Ramban as Teva. There's no such thing as nature. There's no such thing as Minhagos Shalolam. There's nothing that is the custom or the ordinary or routine way of the world, but rather a person, if they want a chelik in the Torah's Moshe, if you want to be part of the covenant of the Jewish people, you want to be part of the Mesorah, of the transmission of our Torah, of our tradition, then you need to look at the world and say there's no such thing as nature. Nothing is simply natural, but everything is the guiding hand of Hashem. So Hashem revealed Himself for this one time in history, so it would become part of the public record, and we would forever look back and say, wow, just like He did then, so too He does now. Just like He did when it was obvious, so too He does when it's more subtle. For the Ramban, No such thing as nature. Everything that happens is from Hashem, it's from above. It's all the will of the Ribbon Shalom. And sometimes, in fact, more than sometimes, unfortunately often, particularly this last year, it's hard for us to see or know or be confident or even appreciate that it's Hashem. When things go wrong, certainly we struggle to try to justify or comprehend how it could be and why He would. But even when they go right, even when they go right, and even when all is well, and even while we're celebrating Most of us fail to pause and to say and to acknowledge and to see His hand. says the Ramban, these big open one-time miracles were by design. And they become a statement and a precedent that we will always turn to. Every year we'll read Va'ira and Bo. Every year we'll sit at the Seder table and celebrate Pesach. And every year we will commemorate these miracles. And then that will cause us to look at our own lives and say, you know, yesterday when I got the parking spot, do you know yesterday when the test came back and it was negative, do you know yesterday when everything worked out, even though I was so nervous it wouldn't? That too is a miracle. Nothing is natural. Nothing is ordinary. More Rav Asher Weiss, the says, in fact, that word nase, based on this Ramban in our parsha's bow, that that word nase does not in fact mean miracle. It means a nase is a sign. It's a banner. It's a mark. What do we say in our davening, in the Amidah Nais? See, Hashem raised the banner, raised the flag, waved the flag to gather in our exiles. A nase is a symbol. It's Hashem's way of saying, I was here. I was here. Some people carve in their initials. Some people sign their name. Some people leave graffiti. People have all kinds of ways of leaving their mark to say, I was here. The 10 plagues, says Rav Asher, are Hashem's way of signing His name in this world and saying, these enormous nisim, these unmistakable undeniable banners that Hashem waved couldn't be missed. It's His signature, I was here. I'm not only aware of your lives, I'm intimately involved in your lives. Nothing is natural, nothing is random, nothing's chance, nothing is part of the ordinary course of events of the universe. It's Hashem's signature, I was here. And when we read that signature and when we see those initials carved into history, then we look at our own lives and we see it carved as well into our destiny. Gemara Shabbos, the Dafkuf test tells us that all the gates of Ghanedin are open for a person who answers, Amen Biko kocho. The individual who says, Amen, person who answers with all their might and all their concentration and all their focus, not while they're texting or looking down or scrolling, not while they're doing 10 other things, but the person who answers, Amen biko kocho. The person who acknowledges and who, who affirms their belief in Hashem with all every ounce of their being, then the gates of Gan Eden are open. What is Amen? What is Amen? Not a woman, but Amen. Amen is an acronym for kale, Melech, Ne'eman. Normally, the promise for doing something virtuous is Olam Haba, the world to come. And yet, here the Gemara and Shabbos is telling us that if you answer Amen with all your energy, that's why it's important to make brachas out loud, if you don't, you deprive someone, you deny them, you rob them of an amen opportunity. You make a bracha out loud; everyone can answer amein, and they could say melach I affirm, I believe. Ditto, yes. And what are you promised if you do that? But says the Gemara: you promised the gates of Gan Eden are open. And revolba's bothered: the gates of Gan Eden are open. Normally, when the Talmud wants to tell us about something that earns a great uh, merit, a great uh, merit, it means that you get access to the world to come. Yerechelik and olam a portion of the world to come. So, why isn't the promise of Ansar Gamain a portion of the world to come? Why is the promise the gates of Gan Eden will open? So, listen to what Revolba says. He says, What was life like in Gan Eden? Adam Arishon, first man. Before man was expelled from the garden, God was undeniable. God was obvious and clear. There was no nature or natural order in the Garden of Eden. It was God all the time and everywhere. But after the expulsion, Adam is cast outside the garden. And he lives in a place where God is veiled, he's hidden by nature. And now man has to peel back the layers of nature to search for and to look for and to reveal God. How do we get back to Gan Eden? How do we get back to a lifestyle and an awareness, a mindfulness, a consciousness? Not that I have to peel back layers and look and reveal, but I see him everywhere. He's as obvious and clear to me as day. The answer is amen, kel maf when you live with Amuna. When you answer amen, which is essentially that statement, that affirmation, that I'm living with Amuna, that I see him everywhere, that he's not only in charge, but he's intimately involved in my life, then wherever I am, I can open the gate to Gan Eden. I can give a peek. I can give a kick. I can look inside. I can go back to where we were expelled from. That's what it means when you answer amen b'ko I can get back to where I was. There are small miracles in our lives each and every day. And Pasha's Bo, the Ramban at the end of our is telling us, if you want a chilek in Torah's Moshe, if you want to be part of the story called the Jewish people, then don't walk around in denial or with blinders. Don't walk around filled with doubt or uncertainty. Don't walk around giving nature credit or dismissing things to randomness or chance. If you want to be part of Torah's Moshe, says the Ramban at the end of Pasha's Bo, then you need to know, That these are not nature, they're called small miracles. The big miracles gives us the confidence and the knowledge to know and to believe in the small miracles and to see them unfolding in our life and to recognize them each and every day. Says the Ramban, this is the core of all of Torah. This is a fundamental principle. We've got to teach children in kindergarten and first grade in every year of education. We've got to teach them in Parshish Bow. and got to teach them at the Svesach Seder. Gemara brachos Davdala tells us, if you recite Shemona Esrei, right after you made the Baruch of Gaal Yisrael, so you finish Shema and its brachos, you make the blessing Gaal Yisrael, punkt, boom, right into Shemona Esrei, then what happens? Muftach Olam Haba, not Gan here is the promise we're more familiar with, the promise that you'll get a portion of the world to come. That seems like a pretty low bar. That seems like a pretty easy thing. Pay attention in Shul, Pay attention in davening. And when you get up to Gal Yisrael, don't get distracted and don't waste time. Boom. Go right from Gal Yisrael into the Amidah. Be someh. Boom. One from one to the other. And then you're good to go. The reward reward seems a little disproportionate for the act. It doesn't seem like such a big deal to do to be earning such a big reward. So listen to what Rabbeinu Yonah writes. Rabbeinu Yonah, in the back of the Gemara Brachos, on that Gemara says the following. says, you know, we stand up to daven. And we turn to Hashem and we say, I have all these needs and I'm turning, I'm, re- I'm relying, I'm leaning on you. I need parnassa and I need knowledge, and I need health, and I need justice, and I want redemption. Please, you, 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 give me, give me, give me, give me, give me all these things. Why would I believe davening works? Why would I think he hears me? I stand up, I take three steps forward, and I say, you, 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 please, I could use this, that, and the other. Why should I think that he hears me, that he's listening, or that he will answer, says Rabbeinu Yonah. That's why right before our Amida, what do we do? Right before we ask him for help for the next thing, we read the Divine Providence and remember he was there for the last thing. Before the tfila where we say, please, 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 We say thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm more likely to believe that you're in charge, you're in control, you're the address I need to turn to when I quickly review history and remember you're the address who was responsible for all that happened to me in the past. I'm Somer Gaula, Litvila. First I take a moment, Gula. oh yeah, ten plagues, splitting of a sea, there's no such thing as nature, oh yeah, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready. Says Ravoba, you gotta know this, Ramban, by heart. Every Jew has to commit it to memory. All of Torah and mitzvahs, this is the esod, this is the foundation, this is what it's all about. To take time every day and pull back that veil and reveal Hashem, and then get a peek Get a window into Gan Eden, to the life that we once led and the life that we're looking to lead once again. That is the Yasod, that is the core of Parshas Bo. You cannot learn Parshas Bo without reviewing this Ramban and without reminding ourselves that that is the essence and that is the goal of life. Okay, let's get back. So Hashem says to Moshe Bo paro come, we're going to Paro. And we always hear, every year we say, why is it Bo not Lech? And the answer is, because normally on shlichus, when a person has an agency or a mission, then the answer is, could you go do that for me? We went through a tough period in the Goldberg home. Our three drivers are all graduated from the house. And we had a few months where we had no driver. My next daughter did not yet have her license. But Baruch Hashem, she passed on the first try, she has her license. So now it works out well. It's a win-win. When you first get your license, all you want to do is drive. And parents are very grateful for you to drive to be able to pick up and drop off kids and do errands and the like. So I don't say, Bo, new, let's go to Publix. New, let's go to carpool. I say, Lech. would you possibly, re-? I don't say, my wife says, could you represent and go do? So why does Hashem say Bo? The answer is, Hashem is not sending Moshe and Aaron on their own. He's right by their side. He's with them and he's going to accompany them. And that's why it's Bo, come, not Lech. The Kotzke Rebbe, the Kotzke Rebbe says, why is it Bo, not Lech? Says the Rebbe, because there's no such thing, a Baruch Hu can't say Lech. Lech means go. And what does go mean? Take leave of me. Go accomplish, go achieve, go do something. The word Lech means go. And the word go means go forth from me. Take leave of me. Says the Katskareba. It's not an anomaly or a question. The reason it doesn't say Lech, but it has to say Bo, is why? Because it's Malek Hola Aretz Kvodo. HaKadosh Baruch is Hashem fills the whole world. He's here, there, and everywhere. He's wherever you let him in, as the famously said. And therefore, for Hashem, there's no such thing as leich. There's no such thing as go, because you can never take leave. Wherever and whenever and whatever you do, Hashem is there. And that's why, by definition, it's always bow. There is nothing short of bow, number one. Number two, the Pasuk says, Why does Hashem say, No, come, bow. Let's go. We're heading out. We got to go back to Paro. It's time to confront him again. And why must he be confronted? Because his heart is hardened, and his heart is hardened. Both he and his servants, the so I can put these signs in his midst. Hashem is giving us the reason: why isn't Paro more flexible? Why isn't he more feeling? Why doesn't Paro see the writing on the wall and let them go? And the answer is because Hashem says, "I want to, I want to make this present." The answer is the Ramban at the end of the parsha. The answer is Hashem never ever wants us to mistake nature for miracles. He says, I want to do these miracles, and therefore I need him to have a hardened, I need him to have a hardened heart. But I saw this beautiful insight of Rav Yechiel of zlotchev who says the following, you know why? You know when our heart becomes hardened? Ki ani. When our life is about ani, is about me. Ego. When ego gets in the way, Then we have a hardened heart. Then we become stubborn and obstinate. Then we're not listening. Then we're not listening. We need a soft heart and a feeling heart. We need a heart that's receptive and open. We need a heart that wants to listen and learn. We want a heart that's going to be inspired. But you know, too often our heart is hardened. Our heart is kaved, it's heavy and it's hardened. And no matter how many messages are broadcast our way, how much inspiration is put in our face, we reject it, it can't penetrate, we don't absorb it, we don't listen. Why? When does it result in a kavedas halev? When do we have a hardened heart? Ki ani, because of ani. The word ani is I. When there's ego, when there's id, when there's I in the way, you have the result of a hardened heart. I saw another pshat that was, It's as if Hashem is answering Moshe. Why is it that the Jewish people and everyone else is so flexible? It's hard to get them to be stubborn, to do the right thing. It's hard to get them to stubbornly always rise to the occasion and do the right thing. And yet Paro seems to be so stubborn. The answer is, Hashem is saying, Ki Ani, I have hardened his heart. You want to know why he's so stubborn? Because I have have brought about that reality and that is the source of his stubbornness. Now there's a very interesting, um, a very interesting word that's used in the next pasuk. Pasuk beis. Hashem says, "Why have I? Why is it to my benefit? Why am I exploiting His hardened heart? Because I want to do these miracles. I want the world to always be able to point back and see. I want you to have a in Torah, portion of the Torah of Moshe, and I want you to teach your children." sipur. It's not just Haggadah, it's not telling, but rather it is giving a story. The root is Sipur, Is to count. You know when it counts? When you tell it as a story, when it's real, when it comes alive, when it's an experience of you. Tell it in the ears of your children and your grandchildren. And what are you going to tell them about how I made a mockery of Egypt? The signs, the symbols, the miracles that the nace, the banner, the flag that I waved, I signed my name. God was here. I don't know what he writes. Hashem, God, Rebono Shalom, Kel, Elohim. I don't know what he writes, but he signs his name. I was here. How does he sign his name? In the miracles. And the signs I placed before them. And then you will know, Vidatem, Ki Ani Hashem. Vidatem. I'm doing all this, the pomp, the circumstance. I'm doing it with the fanfare. I'm flexing, which goes against everything. God is a kill mistater. God is a humble and a modest and a hidden God. God likes to operate behind the curtain. He's violating everything he believes in the whole way in which he set up the world. But he's willing to do it because he wants us to tell our children. Open up parsha's bow. Read the story. And how do we know it's true? Not because it appears in a book, I know it's true because I heard it from my parents who heard it from their parents who heard it from their parents who heard it from their parents. And I'm telling you these miracles, I'm telling you directly in the chain, as well as we can know anything to be true. I'm telling you it's true. And that's why you need to believe. So, what does it say at the end? So, it says Rashleman to so that you'll tell. So, you'll tell for generations. And it says Rav Druk, our first Tamid, our first Rav of the day, the Pasha class this year. We've been going through insights of Rav Yisrael Meir, Druk of Yerushalayim. I don't understand the Pasuk. The whole reason God says I'm doing the Palm and Circumstance is so that you will whisper, so that you will tell in the ear of your children and your grandchildren in Canaan. If so, how should the Pasuk have ended? And they will know who, who's that they will know? They do, meaning, your children and grandchildren. Once you tell your children and your grandchildren, when you learn Pasha's bow and they're on bond with it, they'll know. Who are the children the Pussek's talking about? Not the ones who experienced it firsthand. If you were there, you don't need to be told it as a story, it's part of your act of memory. You were there. So who are the children we're talking about? When it says, you will whisper it in their ear, you'll tell it in their ear. Future generations, that's what Rashi saying. But me and you, us, our children, our kindlech and lach. when they read the parsha and they read Rashi, when they read the story and they're in ban, then we tell them, we gather around, Pesach is coming, I'm so sorry to tell you, we gather around the table, and we're going to tell the story, and we are fulfilling this pasach. that God did these miracles so that we'll tell our children. So therefore, why does it end? And you, you, the generation who lived it, you, the generation who were there, you, the generation that Moshe is talking to right now, you will know. They already know. They were there. What do they need to be told they will know? They were present. They were there. Venira says, it's a good question, no? sowed says, oh, what are you sowed? What an important principle. You know what? It's true. They were there. It's true. They experienced it firsthand. Nevertheless, when you tell something over, you come to know it more intimately. You know it better. You reflect upon it. It penetrates and it integrates into you. It inspires you more deeply. It's possible to have been present. It's possible to have lived through something and yet be oblivious to it, be callous to it. When do you come to realize how significant and meaningful it is? When does it come to move you when you tell it over and share with someone else? And that's why says Rav Druk, the Apostlech telling us, Tell it in the ears of your children in future generations. But he's talking to those who were there. Even you who experienced these 10 plagues, even you who will experience or have experienced the splitting of the sea, tell your children. Because when you tell, it makes it come alive. When you share what happened to you, you relive them. You know them better and they move you they move you more deeply. They awaken and arouse you more meaningfully. As the passage says, Know it today and put it in your heart. By knowing it, you put it in your heart. And that's what the passage says, The goal of telling it over is not just so your children will know the story, it's that, it's that you will be inspired. The exercise, the experience of telling it over, leaves you, yourself, more inspired. And that's why we say at the Seder and the Haggadah, even if you're a super genius, even if you know everything, you know the whole Torah, mitzvah, I love the Safer. You got to tell the story. Why do you have to tell the story? The Rambam goes even to the extreme, to the point of absurd. It says, even if you are... And until this year, we didn't really appreciate or never felt it would apply to any of us, but it applied to too many this past year. Even if you're having the Seder all alone, you have the Seder in a question and answer format. You tell the story to yourself. That's the point of absurdity. It's a story you already know. There's no one there to listen. So you tell the story to yourself. How does that make sense? The answer is the experience or the exercise of repeating the story makes you know it more personally more intimately, to feel more connected to it, and therefore to achieve the goal of Viedatem, you will know it even more. You'll be inspired by it even more and even greater. What an important is but it's predicated by having the sensitivity to ask the question. If it's Lamantisapir, but Azne bincha, if the purpose is to tell it over in the ear of your child, it should say Viedu. Why does it say Vidatem? And the answer is because the one who will come to know God better, to be closer and feel more connected with him, is not just the children to whom it's told, but it is the teller. It is the one who is giving the story who will feel elevated as well. I've shared with everyone ad nauseum and will continue to the importance of of telling stories to our children, of having a family journal or WhatsApp group to share Hashgacha Pratis stories. We used to, before WhatsApp, we used to try to, not always. But we'd sit at the dinner table and we'd say, everyone share where you saw Hashem's hand in your life today. And maybe a kid would say, I didn't really study as hard as I should have, but the teacher asked only the questions that I knew the answers to. And another one will say, you know, this shouldn't have happened, but it came out this way. And another parent will say, this happened to me today, and I really felt Hashem was watching over me, and it's amazing. And everybody telling that story is not just so that the listener who hears the story is moved, it's by everybody even repeating their own story. They go, you know, wow. Hashem was in my life today. I feel closer to Him. I should look to Him. There is no such thing as nature. It's all the Yad Hashem. So the goal of this, of this pedagogic experience is V'idatem, not V'yedu. It's not just the listener, but it's the one telling, will grow stronger in that relationship as well. Next, also on the same sukkim. Rashi, uh, sorry, Rabbeinu Bachaya, Rabbeinu Bachaya says, V'idatem ke'ani Hashem, L'shoa Ulodoros. Not only will it move them, those who went through it, to reflect upon it, it'll move them and elevate and enrich them. And, says Rebbeinu Bahaya, Lidoros, all generations to come, will reflect back and think about the story of Yitzhiah Mitzrayim, and will also be moved in perpetuity and going forward. And wonders of Druk, Yesh L'Haven, Madu Dafka Atta, Kodam when is this pasuk? The pasuk is before the eighth plague. Eighth plague is arbel locust. Ninth plague is choshech darkness, and the tenth plague Mach is Bachoros. So now is when Moshe gives this little speech about you're going to tell the story later, and you whisper it in your children's ear, and they're going to be moved by it, and enriched by it, and elevated by it, and so will you. Why now? Why not with makas one through seven? Why do we wait for Makkah number eight? What is it about Arba? that it's appropriate to introduce specifically here, and it didn't come earlier. It says Rav Druk, The first seven were also suspension of nature. First seven were also extraordinarily impressive. So why does it take until now to say, and you will know why is it specifically here. So listen to what Rav Druk says. Because then came nine, the penultimate plague, which is darkness. Who's going to die? Who's going to perish in the ninth plague? Four-fifths of the Jewish people. We don't think about this enough. We think about the story of the Exodus and the miracle of of millions of Jews being saved, being liberated. But the truth is that four-fifths, that's a huge percentage. Four-fifths, 80% died in Egypt. In Egypt. And we know that's from Rashi in Parshat next week's Parshat. We know that 80% died in the ninth plague of darkness. And only 20% later left. This would be the last plague that they would see. This was the last ditch effort. Wake up! Know there's a God. Trust, confide, submit, surrender. Stop struggling and thinking you're in charge, you're in control, you know better. Stop trying to decide whether you should stay in Egypt or go with God. Always go with God. Vidatem. Know there's a God. And go with God. And stick with God. Stop struggling and stop fighting it. And let go and let God. And that's why says Ravdruk, specifically here, the eighth plague, before the ninth, when they would disappear. It's the last to jefford Vidatem Wake up. No, there's a God. He's in charge. He's in control. Surrender to Him. Put your lot with Him. Place your destiny with Him. Let go and let God. And that's why it was unnecessary in the first seven. The eighth potentially is the last one before these uh, 80% are going to perish. It's the last effort. Okay, continuing right along. Let's keep going. The Makah of Locust comes. Pasuk Chaf ches. We are on page 344 in the Arts Girl Stone, Chumash. What happens? The ninth plague. The ninth plague is darkness. We've discussed this in partial classes in the past. We're not going to get into it again right now. We've discussed it previously. But the question that bothers me every year should bother you is is it really such a terrible Maka? Have no one here ever lived through a blackout? Dark. Okay, darkness. Not pleasant. You don't enjoy it. You're groping around in the dark. You're trying to figure things out but people have lived through a blackout before. So this collective blackout is the penultimate plague. We know we have a tradition that the plagues, the Makos, intensified in order. As they got further into the line, they got more intense and more punitive. So what's so punitive about about Choshech? Why is darkness so terrible? We've discussed it in the past. You can listen to one of the previous uh, Parshashiram to get an answer to that. The plague lasts for three days. Paro gives an offering. What happens? Paro says, Okay, go, get lost. So Paro says, Fine, you can go. Only your flock and cattle stay behind. The children can go, no animals, no sacrifices, no worship. Moshe, Moshe says, Even if you will place in our hands feast offerings, elevation offerings, we shall offer them to Hashem our God and our livestock. They're coming with us. Nothing's staying behind. Paro had the moment of weakness. He entertained letting them go. His heart becomes hardened again. And he doesn't agree to let them go. And Paro now has lost his cool. This is the end of the ninth plague. It took nine patches, nine smacks across the face, nine pandemics for his whole country and empire. And Paro has lost his cool. By Yomer Laparo, and Paro turns to motion, he says, Lech me'alai, get out of here, get lost. By the way, here's the contrast to Kotzker, to Bo. Hashem, there's no lich. Paro's Lech is me'alai, go get lost from me. Lekh, good riddance, get lost. Lich means go far away from me. Whereas Hashem can't say lich because Malach Allah he's everywhere. That's why by dead and the Kotzker said it had to be Bo. But Paro says, I've had enough of you it's enough. get lost. Good riddance. of panai says, Paro, beware. Don't see my face anymore. Panai Tamus. On the day you see my face, you're gonna die. Moshe says, Good, we're on the same page. You spoke correctly. Moshe says, I shall never see your face again. We are done. We're done. What does Rashi say here? What does Rashi say on this? Says Rashi. Says Rashi, I lost my place. I dibarta. my dibarta. You spoke well. And in the right time. True. I'm not going to see your face anymore. We're good to go. I'm done seeing your face. I agree. I agree. I agree. Now what happens? Keep skip to, to Perak uh Yodalaf. Next page. 346 Dyrt Sorokhomish. What happens? The warning of the plague of the firstborn. Moshe leaves Paro, and how does he leave Paro? Paro has had it with him, and he's had it with Paro. He leaves Paro with anger. Moshe takes leave with great anger. The first time we encounter Moshe's anger. What's he angry about? Rashi says, Why is Moshe angry at Paro? Because Paro said, I don't want to see your face again. Why is that a reason to be angry? Paro is a low-life dictator. Paro is an evil, wicked enemy and adversary. He's an oppressor and persecutor of the Jewish people. Who would ever want to see him again? What do we say about Hitler? Ye mach Paro, ye may his name be erased. You'd think Moshe would say, good, you're done with me, I'm done with you. You don't want to see me, I don't ever want to see you. Instead, Rashi says, Moshe takes leave of Paro when he's frustrated. Moshe's angry, he's disappointed. And what is he frustrated, angry, and disappointed about? He's frustrated and angry that Paro doesn't want to see him anymore. Why is that a source of frustration? Why is that a source of anger? So Rav Schwab, Zatzal, Rav Schwab the leader of German Jewry in, uh, in Washington Heights, Baltimore, Washington Heights, first in Europe, if Schwab in his wonderful Sefer on Chumash says, do you know why Moshe is frustrated? Because the whole point here, the whole goal of all these plagues and the goal of the revelation and the goal of the pomp and circumstance and the goal of God in violating His own rules and interfering with the rules of nature, the purpose and the goal of it all was to get Paro to become a Baal The whole goal was to get Paro to admit You know what? At first, when Moshe comes and he says, Nice to meet you, Moshe. Here's my card. I represent God. What does Paro say? I never met this God. I don't know what you're talking about. And the whole goal of this is to get to a point where Paro says, I know God. Now I've come to know Him. I don't just know Him academically, conceptually. I don't know Him in the abstract. I've come to know God in the real, in the here and now, in my life. So Paro throwing Moshe out, before he gets Paro to that point. He's got Paro on the stand. He's pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. He just wants Paro to say in front of the judge, the jury, the cameras in the world, Yodeya es Hashem, I've come to know God. Paro, expelling him before he's come to the point of admitting that, is a source of great frustration for Moshe. Because that's all Moshe wants. That's Moshe's goal. That's where Moshe wants to get. And has Moshe achieved that with everybody else? Yes. Listen to the Ramban. Go to Perekid Aleph Pasuk Gimel. In Aleph Pasagimel, Moshe's warning about the 10th plague, about Makas Bachoros, the killing of the firstborn. And the Pasuk says, that Hashem granted the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Gam ha'ish Moshe gadol mo'od b'eretz Mitzrayim be'ine u'veinei Ha'am. The man Moshe was very great in the land of Egypt, in the eyes of the servants of Paro, and in the eyes of the people. What do you see from here? That Moshe is great in whose eyes? Even in the eyes of the people. You know what the Ramban writes on this? Zokta Ramban Nachmanides Perak Yidal of says the Ramban. If you're the Egyptians, you've lived not through one pandemic, not through one isolation, and quarantine. Not through one, depression, and economic collapse. You've lived through nine of them by this point. Nine plagues upon the people. Are you going to love the one who warns and then brings those plagues? Are you going to fall in love with them? And yet the people love Moshe. They carry no bitterness, no resentment, no animosity. They don't hold him responsible. There's no sinner. there's no hate. They love him. They find him charming. We're the wicked. We're the evil. We oppressed you. We persecuted you. We're the guilty party. Moshe is so successful in this educational journey that he turns the Egyptian people around. They become a people who are complicit with Paro in persecuting the Jews. And these nine plagues are nine lessons in the lesson plan, to teach them, I'd like to introduce you to God. Is it successful? Absolutely. The Mitzrayim, the Mitzrayim, the Egyptians say, wow, there's a God. We've come to know Him. We believe, and we believe He's intimately involved in our lives. And not only do they come to know God, they come to know and love Moshe. Says the Ramban, They even come to love Moshe as God's spokesperson here on earth. In other words, In whose eyes, says the Ramban, it's in the eyes of the Egyptians. It's in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so on. The Ramban says more. So the whole goal of these Makos were to be an educational journey. And the people of Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, got it. Paru expels Moshe before he admits it and acknowledges it, and that's a source of great frustration for Moshe. Except who wins in the end? Who actually gets power to admit it on the stand in front of the cameras in the end? So look at Perik Yud Bay's Posak Bays. This is all in our pasha, all in bow. Therakyad Beis, in the article, Ston Chomish, page 358. And this is now when the Jewish people, after the 10th plague, or during the 10th plague, are going to be on their way. And who suffers? Who's one of the victims of the 10th plague? His family? None other than Paro. And what does Paro say? He says, Gamson Chem Gambikar Chem Kasher Dibartem valechu. Power throws in the towel. He waves the white flag. I'm done. I've had it. I can't do it anymore. His heart is no longer hardened. And he says, take whoever and whatever you want and v'aleichu, go. Good riddance, get going. But power doesn't leave it there. What does he say? Look at the last three words of Pasuk Lamed bays. It's amazing. Maybe you've never noticed this before. What are the last three words of Pasuk Lamed bays? Paro says, I've had it, the 10th plague, we've been decimated, we've been destroyed, I've been humbled. Go! But one thing first before you go. Give me a bracha. Can you imagine how the tide has turned? From the paro who raised Moshe in his palace, to the paro who stubbornly rejects Moshe, to the paro who brings about the downfall of his people, the tragic figure, and how does he go down in history? He says, do me a favor give me a bracha. Says the Ramban on these words, do me a favor, give me a bracha. Says the Ramban, gamos. Rashi says, his parol lo'aday Shani b'chor. This tenth plague is coming. Guess who's a firstborn, says parol. Me. Do me a favor, give me a bracha. With everything else that's gone on between us, Give me a bracha, I not die in this 10th plague because I'm also a bachor. But says the Ramban, when you go, I just told you you can go and take who and what you want with you and you're going to go worship, keep me in mind. Remember me, think about me while you go. Now, why does Paro want him to daven for him? What is implicit? When you ask someone to daven for you, what are you essentially saying that you believe is? You believe in God. This is the admission. This is the surrender. Moshe got out of power what he wanted all along. This last exchange, these final words of power to Moshe are an admission. I know God, but you know him even better. Give me a bracha. Daven for me. Daven for me. So there's an amazing thing going on. And Rabbi Usher Brander points this out in his book called Teachings, uh, In-Depth Reflections in the Parsha. He traces all this very, very beautifully. It's an amazing thing going on in the Parsha that gets lost on so many people who read the Parsha. This back and forth of what Moshe wants, why he gets frustrated when he is expelled from Paro's presence. But Moshe has the last laugh, so to say. Not that he's laughing, because Paro comes back ultimately and recognizes there's a God, recognizes there's a God so much to an extent that he says, please daven for me. Now when he recognizes... Or when the, when the Torah testifies that the Egyptians embrace Moshe, how does it do so? What, what are the words it uses? It's not a coincidence, says Rabbi Salavechik, the words that are used. Gama'ish Moshe, Perk Pasuk, Gimel. And what are these words? Sorry, just finding the place. Got a lot of books open over here. Listen to Rabbi Salavechik. V'aish Moshe gadol ma'od. It's remarkable to note how many times Moshe and Aaron were given an audience with Paro, supreme ruler of Egypt, despite the fact that they repeatedly reproached him. Paro had the power to execute anyone at will. Yet Moshe and Aaron suffered no personal consequence. The tolerance of Paro is perhaps one of the greatest miracles of the Exodus. Again, another miracle which is subtle and which is lost on so many of us. There are ten plagues. Those are open revealed miracles. But is it any less miraculous that Paro continues to entertain an audience with Moshe and Aaron? Why would he keep welcoming them back? That in itself is a miracle. Moshe was a great charismatic leader. It bears witness to Moshe's greatness that he made such an impression on Paro that Paro would do no harm. Torah refers to Moshe with the honorific Ha'ish in two other places in the Torah. Can you think of any? When Moshe delayed in returning to Harsinai from Harsinai after 40 days' absence, the people explained, Moshe Ha'ish. We don't know what's become of Moshe Ha'ish. This man, this unique man, we don't know what's become of him. And again, we find it in Bamidbar. When? This man, Moshe, was exceedingly humble. After Miriam spoke lashanara gossip about him, and she incurred God's wrath, the Torah itself testifies to Moshe's uniqueness and greatness by using the word ha'ish. The word ha-ish, ha'ish suggests a charismatic personality, that his personality was captivating. And that is testified to by God, ha'ish Moshe, anav ma'od, he's humble, by the people This man, this unique man, he hasn't come back. We miss him, we need him. He's unique. And even here by the Torah telling us how the Egyptians felt about him. Unique to Egypt was the fact that they respected Moshe as a human being, not as a super being. The Egyptians being pagans could have deified him as they did Paro, but instead they looked upon Moshe not as a god, as an ish. The first time in pagan history that a man was considered great. Previously in pagan history, if someone was great, they went from being a man to being a deity. It's the first time, again, introducing this, educating the world as to the Torah values, as to God's values of what he wants the world to know and what he wants the world to believe. Our first Imre Chaim of the day, the Vishnitz Rebbe, also on these words. Says the Vishnitz Rebbe, Uberachtem Gamosi, Paro says in those words, which should be immortal, the words of Paro. I mean, this would be like Hitler getting caught by the Allies and is turning to the Jews and saying, as the allies are going to take him away, he turns to the Jews and says, Could you give me a brocha? That's what this is tantamount to. It's, again, you gloss over the puslik, you don't even notice it. But when Paro says, Go, you're free, I can't do it anymore. Just take it all and go. He ends it, uberachtem gam osi, says the Vishnitzereb the Imrechaim, Yecholimatem Gam the We can homiletically interpret these words to mean, gam even from me paro you can find a bracha. We don't only have a bracha from the Yetzaratov, There's a bracha from the yitzharah. Paro is pera. Paro is the epitome of evil and wickedness. So we sometimes think that the only way we can grow is by feeling the influence of our positive. Are yitzha- Tov, but the truth is you learn a lot from the Yitzhahara too. If you understand the Yitzhahara, then you transform the Yitzhahara. Then the Yitzhahara goes from being a liability to an asset. If you understand the yetsahara drives you, and how the Yitzhahara distracts you, and how the Yitzhahara gives you the strength to do things, even if it's for the wrong, you can bottle and capture all that and channel it for the good, then the yetsahara can be transformed into the source of good. It's what the Gemara says. Zdonos, that which you do b'mezid, the intentional things that you do in error, nasen kizchuyos, they can become merits. So gamos see, even the power within our own lives, uberachtem, can become a source of a bracha if we embrace them, transform them, channel them, and use them in the right way. It's again, very homiletical. Not the Pasha Pshat. Not the Pshat in any level of the Pasuk. But a beautiful homiletical interpretation. U'beirachtem gam osi. gam osi. The Pasuk says, Umeavai sechak meini. I've become wise from my enemies. And that comes to understand. What do you mean? How have I become wise from my enemies? If I understand the drive and the strategy of my enemies, I can become wise. I can learn how to have greater drive and strategy myself. I can look at my shortcomings. And if I look at my liability, and if I look at my distractions and temptations, I can draw from them lessons which can inspire and motivate me in the positive see I can learn as well. Okay Torah tells us parachid base Pascu base. Tenth plague. Hashem sets up the tenth plague in an unusual way. Back to page 352 in the Arrowstone Chumash. Pasik says, God says, I'm going to pass in Egypt on this night. I'm going to wipe out all the firstborn from man to animal. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will mete out punishment. And how and why will I do this all? Because I am God, I can, and I will. Wonders. Wonders. Back to the next piece in Ravdruk. Wonders Ravdruk. If I could find the place. Perek Yudbez Pasik base. Why is Hashem specifically skipping over houses here? There it is. Sorry. Hashem has done nine plagues and he was able to. Distinguish between the Egyptians and the Jews? Nine times God had no problem. Nine times the Jews were fine, while the Egyptians were struck. Tenth time all of a sudden God loses that power? All of a sudden God loses that ability? How could it be? What is it about this tenth plague, about Makas B'choros, that needs the Jewish participation? That needs God needs help all of a sudden to distinguish the Jewish from the non-Jewish homes. And furthermore, says Rav Yisrael shliach. All the other plagues were done through an agent. I would have thought the opposite. When God sends a messenger an agent to carry it out, that's when he needs human participation and initiative. That's when the agent needs help. But when God does it himself, an lo Shliach, evil Malach, So why does God need help? If anything, the Jews should have had to mark their homes for the first nine, not for the tenth, which is done by God himself. What is going on here? Good questions. As all of his questions are. It's a phenomenal set of svarim I don't get royalties. I get no royalties. But we're learning it all year, because I really have fallen in love with it. So he says, perhaps we can answer it by understanding the Pasuk. Pasuk says... On the day that I strike the Egyptians is the day that I sanctify. On the day that the Egyptians were struck with the 10th plague, there were two simultaneous goals. There was a dual goal. And what were the two goals? Number one, the Jewish people will leave, the Exodus set them free. And number two, To sanctify the Jewish people, to transform them from being slaves and servants of Paro to slaves and servants of God. So there was a dual goal, a dual purpose: one, to set them free physically, but two, spiritually and emotionally, to transform their status from being enslaved to Paro to being slaves to God. And that's what the pasuk says. Later in the same parak, after the 10th plague, it describes on that day, after all this time, who went free? Tzva'os Hashem. It's the first time the Jewish people are being described as being members of Tzva'os Hashem. Who created the modern day Tzva'os Hashem? The Babach Rebbe Zatzal. Rebbe Zatzal later this week is the 70th anniversary of when he ascended to become Rebbe. We're going to mark it with a Benny Friedman concert at BRS. you got to register online, and then you're welcome to come for free, socially distance with masks. We're going to celebrate it. So Tzvos Hashem, I was recently promoted from private, which I carried from my youth, and on Behind the beam a few weeks ago, I was promoted to a general in Tzvos Hashem. I'm very proud of it. But what does it mean to be Tzvos Hashem? It means that not just that you're some secular, free, political entity, country, nation, God doesn't just liberate us and let us go, we spoke about this with Velakachti last week. He took us out specifically to bring us to Har Sinai, to make us a covenantal community, to give us a mission and a purpose and a mandate to repair and improve His world, to bring greater light in this world. That's why we got the title, Tzavos Hashem. Tzavos Hashem means you're in the army of Hashem. What's your rank? What's your role? What unit to belong to? What are you doing to fight the battle and win the war of trying to improve and repair the world in God's image? This is the first time that this description is used says Rav Druk because this is a fulfillment of that second goal of why God's taken them out. Not just to be a free people, but to be a free people who have a purpose. A purpose-driven people. A covenantal people. That's why he took us out. We were on the lowest level of the 49 levels of impurity, of contamination, of corruption, How did he turn us around? We needed to do something. So you're right. All 10 plagues, God did not need our help. He's God. Whether he did it through an agent or whether he did it directly on his own, he did not need our help. He's the infinite, omnipotent God. He did not need our help. So why in the 10th plague did he ask us to mark the door and he'd skip over it? Not because he needed it. We needed it. We could become free without doing it. But you know what we wouldn't have become? A holy people, a mission-driven people, a purpose-driven people. To do that, we needed some skin in the game. And the way we had skin in the game was to take that blood of the God of our enemy and to put it in the doorpost. The way we had skin in the game was not to be a passive spectator, but to be a fully active participant and to get in the game. And says Rav Druk, that's why this is the first plague that God did not do on His own with us being passive, but He invited and asked us to be participants, not because He needed our help, if that were the case, it'd be the opposite. The first nine, we should have done it when it was through an agent. And this one, God would do on his own. But rather, it's because this was the plague that would transform us into Tzavos Hashem. This is the plague that would turn us into that holy, consecrated, mission-driven people. B'salb also has a comment here. B'salb Ovechik says, The Medrash says about this, this is the blood of the Korban Pesach and the blood of circumcision. The two go together, Korban Pesach and brismila. The slave hates physical pain. He suffers enough from the baton of the taskmaster and is not prepared to endure pain because of a commandment which will not increase his portion of meat for the flesh pot. The slave is a coward. He quakes before his owner and his brutal taskmaster. After all, a slave does not understand the idea of self-sacrifice, of fighting for a principle or an ideal. Therefore, the sages said that the slave does not make a worthy witness. Cowardly as he is, he will often not tell the truth. Moshe came and told the people, undergo physical pain, circumcise yourselves. Because no uncircumcised male can partake of the korban Pesach, tafyomi today. And offer that lamb which is defied by the Egyptians, deified by the Egyptians. When the Egyptians notice, they will certainly blame the Jews for, for profaning their religion. Nevertheless, the slaves took upon themselves both the suffering and the commandment of the Paschal lamb with love, and were not frightened. They were ready to pay with the blood of suffering and fear for the privilege of performing Hashem's command. And thus the response: I say unto you. B'dama the pasuk in Yechezkel that we say at a bris Milah. Gvura says the Rav. Courage, heroism, is a foundation of Judaism. Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the Divine Name, manifests itself in courage. This courage was shown by the Jews in the night of Pesach, that we took this hyssop, we dipped it in the blood, and we marked our doorposts. Hashem wanted to see your sacrifice, your transformation, your wondrous courage, your willingness to conquer your fear and suffering. You've learned to distinguish between the sacred and profane. You've displayed gvura in conquering your fear and your will. Therefore, Hashem will distinguish between you and the Egyptians and will reveal his trait of guru or restraint. Says the Rav, it's mida kenegin mida. You know, how do you get out of a slave mentality? You need to show courage. So Hashem didn't need anybody's help, and it could have and would have happened without us, but nevertheless, the Jewish people, mida k'neged mida. You want Hashem to show gvura? Then you've got to display some gvura. And how do we display gvura? With courage. And what was the courage? The courage to endure pain, the pain of Brismila, and the courage to, um, to defy the deity of our enemy by placing that blood on the, on the doorposts. By placing the blood on the doorposts. One more, I think we have time for. The Rav Al Ishmi Pesach Beso. We said a person is not allowed to go out on that night. Apostolic said the night of, of the 10th plague, a person couldn't go out. On the night of freedom, the slaves perform the movement of withdrawal, of recoil, of self-defiance, of self-limitation. Freedom does not rid a man of his morals, but on the contrary, adds to his morals. This, the transition from slavery to freedom, is very critical. The masters who exploited, tortured, humiliated, find themselves suddenly at the mercy of slaves for whom they showed no mercy, no concern, displayed no human emotion. The natural reaction of the slave who was suddenly freed is to avenge himself on the tyrant who murdered his baby, who assaulted and disgraced his daughter, who mercilessly beat him for any minor infraction. It is usually a, blood, a bloody, ruthless, and vengeful transition. Fear of a slave upheaval haunted all the tyrants of antiquity. Rebellion by slaves meant total destruction. History records many bloody and ruthless insurrections of slaves against their masters. Ancient Rome experienced twice or thrice a grim confrontation with slaves who had set themselves free. European history knows of the peasants' rebellion in medieval Germany and of the bloody Cossack revolt in the Ukraine. The stories about the cruelty of the rebels are blood-chilling. They were eager to settle a long account of cruelty. Horrific massacres were typical. The brutish drive for vengeance, for gratification of the satanic and man was irresistible. Did anything of that happen on the night of Yetzias Mitzrayim? 600,000 slaves were liberated. Pharaoh came to Goshen to plead with Moshe. The Egyptians were hysterical, moaning and crying. The Jews were now the masters, the Egyptians the subordinates. The oppressors were at the mercy of their former slaves. Were Egyptian babies taken out of the embrace of their mothers and thrown in the Nile? Did the Hebrews beat up their taskmaster? Did the liberated slaves set fire to the exclusive neighborhood of their former overlords? Did the teenagers let smash the window panes of the offices where the taskmasters would assemble to plan restrictive and sadistic edicts? Nothing of the sort. Not one person was hurt. Not one house was destroyed. The liberated slave had the courage to withdraw to defy the natural call of the blood. What did the Jew do in the hour of freedom? Instead of swarming the streets of Goshen, they were locked up in their houses, eating the Korban Pesach, reciting Hallel. It is unique in the history of revolutions. What an insight. What an insight. The greatest testament to the Jewish people is that when we got that freedom, and it wasn't just then, there are stories after the Holocaust of those who were liberated from camps, of those who escaped, of those who had the opportunity to murder the Nazis who oppressed or murdered their loved ones, and they didn't because they wouldn't lower themselves to be just like the enemy. The Jews celebrated freedom not by becoming the taskmaster. The Jews celebrates freedom by eating the Korban Pesach and by singing the Hallel and by reflecting on what freedom means, freedom from and freedom to. And if you didn't just write this down for your Pesach Seder, you've missed an enormous opportunity. Because what a conversation for the Pesach Seder and for the Haggadah night. A conversation about what freedom means. And do we use it to become the oppressor ourselves? Do we use it to rally and riot? Or does freedom mean self-restraint, self-control? freedom from, freedom to, and the freedom of responsibility. Everybody stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Have a wonderful day. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel to know when we go live. Next week, we are going to have Parsha class. We're not taking off, but it will not be on Zoom. I know I said that for this week, but I really mean it. So you, those who are listening on Zoom, there are still uh, several dozen listening on Zoom. There's no Zoom next week. If you want to hear the Parsha class, you got to come on YouTube. It'll be live next Tuesday morning at the usual time, 9.30 on YouTube. If you subscribe to the YouTube channel, you'll get notified when we go live. Have a phenomenal day, everyone. Thank you again to our sponsors. Neshama Shadav and Aliya.